All right. Well, uh, let's uh, let's jump into this. Uh, Terry, welcome to season. Wait, this isn't season two. We just finished season two. Welcome to Bristlecone Fireside's summer sessions. Same great show about God, the universe, and everything, but with more Otter Pops in the backyard kind of feeling. Uh, in previous seasons, each episode has kind of been a deep dive into various topics from stewardship to the divine feminine, to bring in from everything from Wendell Berry to Jungian psychology. Uh, however, this summer we're going to just chill it out and just talk to people about themselves and their love for the earth. Um, also, I need to excuse Abby, who just recently got married and has been throwing together a wedding, a reception, and a honeymoon while also finishing her degree at school. So our listeners will have to be content with just me uh, until Abby's life settles down some. Um, so our guest today is Terry Martin, who's one of my coworkers at the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance. Um, Terry is going to be retiring this year, and so I thought it would be a really great opportunity before uh, that happens to sit down with her and to have a conversation about about Utah's uh, Utah's wild landscapes and about activism and about spirituality. Um, so, Terry, I'm going to throw a tiny curveball at you before we get going. What things have we been have you been doing to usher in the summertime? Hello, Madison. I have to first say that it's a complete pleasure to be on your podcast. I'm a huge fan. I'd love to listen to it while I'm on long drives or on long walks, and I'm. It always uh, stimulates my mind, fills my heart, makes me more curious about the world. So, um, it's a pleasure to be speaking to you. Uh, summer, I have been trying to restore my garden. I've been swimming in the wonderful long lap pool at yes. Steiner. And I've just been out in Salt Lake's amazing long evenings of light. Yeah, the evenings of Salt Lake. I since I've moved back into Sugar House, I you know you forget how great some of the evenings are. Just like walking around town, checking out the parks, and just getting like gelato. It just those are yeah, so magical. totally. <laughs> it's it's life on the street, and everyone there's a lot of people out there doing that, and a, this wonderful sense of. Of community, it reminds me of being a kid riding my bike around on summer evenings. Uh, so it, I think it's 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 a really great season for the absolutely city. cool. Well, then let's jump on into uh, our conversation. Terry, can you give us a little bit of background on who you are and what brings you into this conversation? Well, because I'm speaking here on Bristlecone Firesides, I'll start by saying that I was raised in the San Francisco Bay Area as a Catholic. And I went to Catholic school uh, in my elementary years. And I actually thought for many years that I would become a nun, which really? I think is a... I know that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's kind of a... Um, I mean, if you go to Catholic school, I think almost everyone thinks yeah. they're going to be a nun or a priest. But I think it also reflects some kind of... Um, devotional or service impulse that I have in right. me. And I'm not no longer consider myself a Catholic, but I'm really glad for having learned the teachings because they enrich my perspective on life. But by eighth grade, I already felt that uh, the Catholic church wasn't the right place for me. And I told this wonderful progressive priest that it was because I couldn't believe in a God 
who would punish people and condemn them to hell. And he said something which gave me pause. I wasn't sure it's something the Catholic Church fully embraced, uh, but it certainly gave me pause and it's resonated with me ever since. And what he said is that God doesn't condemn people to hell. Hell is what we experience when we choose not to be in the presence of God. Mm. And I, I think about that because it's another way of saying something I think a lot about today. And that'll unfold more as we talk. Um, early on, I experienced the natural world or what I experienced as wild places as my spiritual home. From the time I was little, I always sought out wildness. It might've been in my backyard. Like there was a far corner where there was no lawn, just dirt and weeds. And it was my favorite corner of the yard. But yeah, exactly. But I spent even more time um, in this huge apricot orchard at the end of our street where I would go with my older sister and brother and we would flush out jackrabbits and deer. And for me, this was the place where the mystery was, where I definitely felt the presence of something larger than myself. That is, that's a really good word for it. Mystery. I, I feel like in our Western world, we, we love certainty. You know, we love to have things written out on paper and just know things for sure, black or white, but mystery is something that like kind of beckons us and it's really big and it's, it's what's out there. That's a really good word. Yeah, precisely. And it also positions us ourselves, not as the knower, but as the questioner or the experiencer. So one of the big experiences when I was a kid is that we didn't, we didn't go on vacations much because we were a working class family. And because um, my mom really didn't like camping very much because she always said, I just have to do the same work I do at home, but with a bundle of children <laughs> in more primitive arrangements, which was true. I remember some rather nightmarish situations, but several times we went up to the Redwoods and I remember that as my parents set up camp, my sister and brother and I would, um, you know, they'd say, get out of our hair and, and we'd go off and explore And I remember finding myself at the foot of one of those absolutely gigantic trees. And I would say that this was the first time in my life where I really experienced a sense of awe or, you know, maybe the divine. And I would define that as being in the presence of something so much bigger than yourself and feeling rather terrified, yeah, but feeling very safe at the same time. Yeah. No, that's, that's, that's fantastic. Yeah. It's very, it's a marker for me in my life. Yeah. No, it makes me like, cause I'm sure that most people, when they think of like national parks or, you know, uh, kind of American wilderness, they think of these redwoods, they think of John Muir, they think of Yos or not Yosemite. Yeah. Yosemite and the Sierra Nevadas. And I just think that that landscape has had such a, such an impact on kind of the American psyche, uh, that that's kind of where the idea for the national parks was born even. And, uh, that, that, that landscape, while it has just translated to the American mind wildness into a very high degree. Yeah, Sure. Oh, that's very cool. So then, so you're from California, but how did, how did you come to Utah and then become an activist? 
my origin story. <laughs> so even when I'm not speaking on bristlecone firesides, I sometimes tell people that God sent me, <laughs> even though I don't believe in God in the traditional Christian right. sense. Um, after high school, I was in a volunteer program called the Student Conservation Association, which is a great program for any of your listeners. Um, and I was up in North Cascades National Park uh, with a group of fellow uh, high school age students. We spent three weeks in the backcountry building trail. And after that, I hiked the Olympic coast. And after that experience, all I could think of was how am I going to make my way back to wild places? So I decided I would try to work for the National Park Service in the summer. And back in 1973, I applied to 100 National Park wow system units. <laughs> and Madison, get this, I got one job offer. Wow. And and this is this is crazy. I it was to be a lifeguard for the National Park Service on Lake Powell <laughs> for $2.95 an hour. Uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, uh this was 1973, yeah. a year after Glen Canyon National Recreation Area was established. I think they closed the spillways on Lake Powell in 1966. Yeah. Um and when I got this job offer, I ran to the map and I saw that it was located on the Utah-Arizona border. And I thought, oh, no, I hate the <laughs> desert because I had this image of people crawling across sand dunes under the broiling sun. And then I was so naive that I, I looked at the map and I saw that it was green and I thought, OK, it has trees. <laughs> but then I began to hear things about the Colorado Plateau, like it was a place not only of amazing beauty, but I was living in Berkeley and people would tell me that is the new site of spiritual rising. And someone told me, you need to go look at the book, Glen Canyon, the place no one yeah. knew. So I went to the student bookstore in uh, Berkeley and sat on the floor, turning the pages of this, you know, coffee table sized book, looking at these absolutely extraordinary photos of what was being drowned by Lake Powell. And I realized I was headed into something that I couldn't even begin to imagine. And then what happened is I, I actually hitchhiked there, <laughs> uh, to the surprise of my future employers. And I was, uh, I, I got a ride with a couple people on a Volkswagen bug, of course. And we were coming up um, from, from the south. And there's this point where you, the road climbs up and you reach a pass and as you reach the pass, what spreads out in front of you is the Colorado River Basin. And you can see Navajo Mountain and the Kapowitz yeah. Plateau and the Ponce Plateau and the Market Plateau. And it's just this sweep of uh, Red Rock Desert. And we all literally gasped in the car. And they said to me, are you going to work here? And I said, I'm going to live here. And I swear that was it. It was like love at first sight. And it's a love that's never wavered for me. Oh, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. Cause I, Lake Powell has just been in the news so much over the last, you know, two or three years because of the drought and like the, 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 the plunging water levels. 
And something that people always ask me like, oh, well, what do you think about, you know, Lake Powell? Because it's such a bittersweet thing and kind of the loss of Glen Canyon. But but what I tell them is that Lake Powell for a lot of people is the is is how they fall in love with the desert, right? That's how they fall in love with the Colorado Plateau and that's how they fall in love with Red Rock. And so that it, it yeah, well, and yeah. so I, and every time I tell them that I think of your story and I think about being a lifeguard, <laughs> you know, at Lake Powell yeah. and how that kind of yeah. began this, 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 this thing for you. Um, so you, you come to Lake Powell. So what got you started into activism though? Because, you know, transitioning from being a lifeguard at Lake Powell to being an activist is, is something different. Well, I think I've always had an activist heart. I have always had this compulsion to advocate for what I love or what I perceive as an injustice. Um, as a, a little kid, um, I talked about that orchard right. where we spent time and I would actually, when they, when the stakes arrived before they cut the orchard down and they were staking out uh, one of the many subdivisions that basically destroyed all the productive orchards uh, in that area. Um, here I was a good little Catholic girl and I knew that I shouldn't really harm private property, so-called, <laughs> but I would pull up stakes and throw them over the fence into the high school <laughs> because I felt there was a, there was a bigger right here. Like the, 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 I don't know where this came from. I mean, what is, how, where did these things come from? I felt I was like eight, nine, 10, 11. Yeah. Definitely no older than that. And uh, there was a bigger right in pulling up those stakes to protect this piece of ground. So, you know, in high school, it was the Vietnam War, and I was uh, elected as a peace delegate to Washington, D.C. in 19, what was it, 1970, when the U.S. invaded Cambodia. So when I fell in love with the Red Rock Wildlands, I just felt compelled to try and be a voice for that landscape, because I knew it couldn't speak for itself, at least not in our human decision-making spaces. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's really cool. Uh, as I'm, you know, an activist as well, cause we're coworkers and I definitely, I, you know, the, the, the question of, do you, have you always been an activist or is this something that you grow into? And, you know, I wonder if, if you just, you just are born an activist, right? You're just, you're just born caring about something and you're born needing to like speak up for things that don't have their own voices or who, whose voices are underprivileged or marginalized. Um, and, uh, I think that's a really, that's a compelling story. Um, and so the specific landscape that, that you and I work on is we work on Utah's red rock wilderness. Um, so the, my question for you is, is what is the value of this place? What is the value of Utah's red rock, red rock wilderness? Well, when I answer that, when I go to the heart of that question personally, um, it's, it's, it's sort of captured in that famous quote by Thoreau where he says, in wildness is the preservation of the yes. world. And I, I say that both on a, for spiritual reasons and for ecological reasons. Like most fundamentally, uh, being in wild places, even if it's the corner of my backyard, 
is where I experience on a cellular level that I am part of something much larger than myself, something timeless, something that's in, but also beyond the forms that surround me. And I think some people might call this experiencing the divine. I described it earlier earlier as a childhood sense of awe. In Eastern terms, this might be called the move from experiencing I, the I as a small S self to experiencing the I as a big S self. Some might describe it as connecting with the love that flows through everything, humans, animal, plants, rocks. And, you know, why is that important? And why does this lead to the preservation of the world? For me, I think it's because that experience teaches a certain humility, an understanding of our place in the scheme of things, an understanding that I'm not the center of the universe. Humans are not the center of the universe. I'm not in control and I should not act as if I am. I am, in fact, inextricably interconnected with everything around me. And my health and well-being depends on the health and well-being and vice versa. You know, that's a very different worldview than we learn under Western yeah, thought. And on, yeah, and under a capitalistic system, which seems human and nature as separate and humans as having dominion over nature and nature as resources that can and should be exploited for human comfort or wealth or profit. It's very, uh, very and, objectifying. And this brings me very much so. And this brings me back to uh, the, my Catholic priest at the beginning <laughs> of this, of our exchange here, where he said, you know, that's pretty much what he described as hell, choosing not to live in the presence of God, if God is that deep sense of being interconnected to everything, yeah. part of part of everything, and everything as well as a part of it. So, you know, I think we as humans get caught in this illusion of separateness, and it's reinforced by our by our cultures, and it compels us to do all sorts of harmful things things to feel the void that we experience when we feel separate from, from something larger than ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, No, I, I fully agree with you there that the value, the spiritual value of, of kind of wild landscapes is that it, it demonstrates to you pretty viscerally that your, your dependence on these places, right? Like you go into the desert and you get thirsty and when you get thirsty, there's nothing more obvious that you need is, is water and water is, is kind of the material lifeblood of, of the earth and your dependence on it demonstrates your interdependence on the whole ecological system. And I think that, that, yeah, the, uh, the need to feel separate and superior is part of the whole, whole like Western mindset. And the antidote to that is to have experiences in the wild where you are neither of those things. You're not superior and you're not separate. You're, you're small, but you're also connected to this big S self of, of, of a world. Yeah, I like how you um, tie the very physical experience of looking for water to, to a, a more profound 
spiritual insight. You know, the other piece of why wildness is important for the preservation of the world is is just the ecology yeah. of it. And you just touched on that. I mean, protecting land is a key component to how we protect the health of the planet. It um, provides critical habitat for wildlife and plants, provides reservoirs of clean air and water. Um, and what we've really learned in the last few years uh, at SUA is how much land is fundamental to mitigating the impacts of climate change and uh, to turning around the extinction crises. You know, basically, uh, I'll name four things that we learned. One, um, the America's Red Rock Wilderness Act, which is this vision and proposal to protect 8.4 million acres of public land managed by the BLM in Utah. And what we refer to in brief as the Red Rocks Act, it would one, keep fossil fuels in the ground, preventing huge amounts of carbon from being released in the atmosphere. And two, it would also help pull carbon out of the atmosphere and store it in forests, plants, and soils because uh, the land would be undisturbed and those, those forest plants and soils would be able to serve their natural function. And it would also protect, three, it would protect what is known as climate change refugia, which means it would protect um, these habitat areas which are a safe haven for wildlife as they make genetic adaptations or make gradual shifts in their ranges. And finally, uh, protecting lands in the Red Rocks Act um, would make a tremendous difference because it would increase what we call landscape connectivity. You know, the wildlands in Utah are uh, just part of a chain of ecosystems that stretch from Mexico to Canada. And the problem is that right now we've only protected small uh, islands of land in that chain of ecosystems, which um, lay separate from each other. And that destroys biodiversity. So Utah wildlands contain parts of five key wildlife corridors that connect these protected uh, islands like Yellowstone or Grand right. Teton or the Bitterroot Wilderness. And it, it not only does it fill in the map, but it also can, protects parts of five key wildlife areas. So in all those ways, um, wilderness is essential for the preservation of the world uh, and for mitigating climate change. Yeah, no, this this kind of the second um, part where we talk about you know, why wilderness is, is important ecologically speaking in Utah. I think that was, I feel like Sue is kind of at a turning point right now where we, where I think before, you know, we're, we're used to just talking about, we need to save wilderness for the sake of wilderness. Right. And I think that there, there's an argument to be made there, but I think this argument of we need to save wilderness because in context with the larger world around us, this place serves a vital a vital function and a vital piece of mitigating this climate crisis. Like I think that is, that is one of the greatest arguments that could be made for protecting any landscape, let alone Utah's, you know, red rock landscape. Um, and I think that goes so much to what we were talking about before of the, the value value of wilderness is that it demonstrate or it, it, it helps you see how you are connected to something much bigger and that kind of in a meta way, um, the way that we are doing this, this work is 
stopped being kind of uh, this more individualized, we need to protect wilderness for the sake of wilderness. And we've, we've connected it to this larger, the larger problem going on, which is climate change. And I think that is just a beautiful uh, kind of pivot and movement that we've done. And it's really exciting and I think energizing. Yeah, that's well said, Madison. And like Sua, one thing I'm really pleased about is Sua really did its homework on this scientifically. We hired um, a uh, um, a scientific uh, organization, nonprofit to to do the analysis about how protecting lands in the Red Rocks bill. You know, we asked them, yeah. can, would how would this protecting these lands affect uh, the climate issue and also the biodiversity crises. And, and they did some hard science homework. In the end, it, you know, it, you're right. The, at the core of it are these um, principles that you could call spiritual or philosophical <laughs> or ecological about how things are interconnected. But we also have some really good measured science of how keeping fossil fuels on the ground, protecting plants, animals, yeah. and soils for sequestration, connecting landscapes, connecting, protecting wildlife refugia and uh, landscape corridors actually makes a measurable difference. So, um, no, it's, a, it's, I'm really glad uh, that we had the foresight yeah. to do that research Absolutely. and we can talk about it uh, based on that research. Yeah. So this work that we do, it's, it's pretty hard job. You know, it kind of feels like Sisyphus who is doomed to just, uh, roll a rock up a big hill for the rest of his life or for all of eternity. Um, and so it feels like, uh, their victories come kind of far and few between. Um, but what, over, over your, your career, what successes have you had that you are particularly proud of? Well, I, I should say first that, um, and this may sound funny, but I don't think much in terms of successes. I think more about what one might call right action or meaning what can we do what can i do what can we do to move things forward a bit to cultivate a community that will move things forward a bit um you know it's a tremendous relief and very satisfying to win a designation that provides some form of permanent at least we hope yeah. protection yeah. or to stop a project that would destroy or harm a place uh, but sometimes I've said that the monuments to conservation work are invisible because of what is not there. Hmm, that's and actually really a good point. Instead of what is there. Uh, and, you know, as important are, is something kind of harder to measure, which are shifts and how we as a community understand and value what we call nature yeah. and public yeah. land. And, you know, bottom line, any success always depends on an evolving human consciousness about the earth. But all that said, I, I would mention two things. And the first is a project you and I have talked about in the past um, that SUA uh, initiated around 2008 called Faith in the Land. And we initiated this project because people suggested we talk with communities of faith about uh, wild places. Um, the project was aimed at creating an interfaith statement about the spiritual importance of wilderness um, and in building allies within communities of faith. And what we decided to do was not to go to the leaders, but to go to, to just the community, to people, 
and to develop this interfaith statement by bringing people together in different faith communities and asking two simple questions and then listening to what people said. And the questions were, how do you find spirituality in the natural world, number one? And number two, how does your faith tradition call on you to protect the natural world? So we hosted 11 different gatherings uh, in, in 11 different faith communities. And, and we had people sit in small circles of five to six. And we asked them to, to talk and listen to each other and then report out what they heard. And, you know, even after just four of these dialogues, I realized that people were basically saying the same thing. And it was amazing. It didn't matter if I was meeting with the LDS community, who we met with actually twice, mm -hmm. or the Catholics, or the Muslims, or the Jewish community, or the Unitarians, it was amazing. People were saying the same things. And what they were saying is that um, when they are in nature, it connects them to something larger than themselves. God, Allah, the divine spirit, the unnameable mystery. They may have called it something different, but this profound experience of feeling connected to something larger than themselves was at the core. And then, you know, what followed from that was a, 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 a slew of things that people shared across faith traditions. You know, one is that in wildness, people find a vital counterbalance to the busyness and distractions of our day-to-day -day lives. Um, that in wildness is a place of worship and spiritual reflection. That wildness reminds us of what's important in our lives, puts things in perspectives, reveals our place in the scheme of things. That wildness teaches us what it means to be human and makes us aware of our humanity. That wildness offers spiritual solace, refuge, and healing. That it deepens family bonds and brings us joy together and that it's been a place of revelation and enlightenment for many of the great teachers of our spiritual traditions. I'm, I'm looking at the uh, a faith in the land, a call for wilderness stewardship statement that was produced from this, mm -hmm. as I tell you those things. So um, this was a really wonderful and profound experience um, to uh, both because of uh, I, how we went about it, which was to simply ask common people in these communities these questions and then listen deeply. Uh, and also because of the commonality that emerged from it, uh, to find that people from very different spiritual traditions were saying the same thing. So that was that was a very beautiful and inspirational That's thing. Very cool. And those folks, those folks uh, went on to 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 um present this material to uh, leaders in Utah uh, um, and um, to share it more within their own communities. So it had a political messaging right. aspect as well. So that was a really um, a, a big uh, experience for me. And I would say the other thing that I would mention is um, the experience with bears, with the with the um, campaign to protect Bears right, Ears yeah, National yeah. Monument, and you know, to be clear, what this um, was 
uh, a tribal proposal. And Sua's work uh, on this was really to stand behind the tribes in support of their proposal. Um, and uh, it, the, my experience with the Bears Ears campaign was really a profound learning for me, both politically and spiritually. Honestly, a little bit uh, jealous because the, the Bears Ears campaign happened like, you know, just a couple years before I came on on SUA. And so I, I got to, you know, I got to read about it in the newspapers, but I didn't actually experience it from kind of the, the, the suicide of things. So I'd love to know, please, to, I want to know more about, you know, kind of what you, uh, what you learned from this whole process. Well, um, I, I have to start with that. Number one, it, it really woke me up, um, to the reality that what we call public lands, are really the homelands of indigenous people who were forcibly removed. I mean, I always knew that there were tribes in the region who had been moved against their will to reservations, reservations that did not begin to reflect the extent of the territory they occupied or used, and that these reservations were often shrunk in violation of treaties. But I sort of thought of all that as happening a long time ago and being history. You know, when I, first came to Utah and I saw cliff dwellings and rock art on the Colorado Plateau, people referred to those sites as, quote, ruins. Uh, and they described the erstwhile occupants as the Anasazi. And the narrative that was promoted in books and interpretive signs everywhere was that these so-called ruins were abandoned seven to 900 years ago. And the big mystery was, where did they go? You know, <laughs> Uh, now we know the obvious, that the so-called Anasazi simply migrated south from, <laughs> to form the Pueblos in New Mexico and Arizona. I mean, it's really rather goofy. <laughs> it wasn't so insulting yeah. and damaging. And I sometimes think the Puebloan people were probably shaking their heads and laughing at Western archaeologists and the rest of us thinking, if you could just come and ask us, we could <laughs> tell you. Uh but, you know, the public narrative also ignored the strong history of the Navajo and the Ute, Mountain Ute and the Ute and the Paiute tribes right. that were tied to public lands in Utah. So, you know, when when I arrived here, that was really what all the books and interpretive uh, programs were about. It's kind of how I thought about it. During the Bears Ears campaign, someone produced a very simple map that... Um, was titled The Colorado Plateau from the Indigenous Eye. Um, and on that map, the, the four corner state lines of Utah, Colorado, New Mexico, Arizona are erased and the territories of the tribes appear. And I think that simple map was a huge wake up call for me and a lot of people. I mean, I was really naive in the way that many privileged white people often are. Um, in my own mind, I thought what was important was the landscape itself, because I felt that the land didn't belong to anyone. And I still believe that the land does not belong to anyone, and that it's not owned by right. anyone. But my understanding of the relationship between people who lived here before me and the land has shifted dramatically. Um, I, I, you just floated down through the I Green did. River, through Desolation Canyon. Yes, and I remember, as you know, the, the Ute Reservation 
uh, is on one side of the river as you come down through that canyon. And I remember floating uh, down the Green River through Desolation Canyon and thinking, oh, you know, what really counts are not these uh, ownership claims on the landscape, but what really counts is the natural features, the river and the land and the river, the land shapes, not the humans who lay claim in these various ways. But I have now come to appreciate that I was floating through a landscape that had been occupied by the Utes for a long time and that they were promised a certain sovereignty over that land by treaty and that that treaty was broken. And I've come to appreciate that in our efforts to protect the wild character of public lands in Utah, we need to understand that history and we need to do what we can to ensure that tribes have a meaningful seat in future decision-making processes that affect these lands. Yeah, no, that it, this is making me think that, you know, we as humans, we like to think that we're separate from the land, right? And that maybe our approach to protecting the land also perpetuates that same narrative of we're different, you know, let's just protect the land itself and then separate from all human histories, human cultures, human, you know, issues. When in reality, to protect landscape is, is to take into account and to factor in all the human history that, that goes there as well. And that humans are not separate from the landscapes that we're protecting. Yes, that's well said also. I, you know, I think it's a mistake we make over and over again that we come to a landscape and we, we perceive, we, we accept it as it is or how we perceive it. And what I've learned is we do need to learn the history. We need to know who was there before and what happened before. And this is one reason we lose places because when we accept, we accept the land as it is and we feel we need to be reasonable, we need to compromise. And that usually means, you know, allowing one more road, one more oil well, one more mine, one more housing development. And we, we miss the cumulative effect of all that's come before because we've missed the history. And so we simply add to that cumulative effect, um, which includes the effect of colonialism. And so we lose land and we lose cultures incrementally over time. Wow. Uh, you know, not in a bad meaning way, just in a, in a, in an unconscious way. Yeah. That's powerful. So the other, the other thing that happened with Bears Ears for me was that my interaction with the Native Americans I worked with during the Bears Ears campaign really deepened and evolved the way I understand my relationship to land and other forms of life. And you, you've heard this in some of what I've been talking about. Um, I can't begin to represent indigenous cosmology and that's not what I'm trying to do here. But I can talk about how my conversations with people I met influenced my own thinking. And what was really mind expanding to me was how tribal members talked about the land and plants and animals and water and air as relatives. Mm. And they spoke about how we need to treat animals and plants, dirt and rocks as relatives. And as I understood it, this meant 
being in a relationship of, of what some people call reciprocity, where one thinks about the well-being of these relatives in making decisions and understands that our welfare is inseparable from their well-being. You know, this is not the oversimplified trope of the planet is Mother Earth. What I thought I was hearing from the tribal folks I interacted with was much more complex than that. Um, it's a really deep understanding of the interconnectedness of all things and a deep respect for the interconnectedness. You know, back to uh, in in Eastern or more mystical terms, this might be uh, an understanding of the self as not only as small as self, as an individual who has agency to make decisions, but also the self in the large S sense, meaning that one is part of or one with an energy or consciousness that's much larger um, that some people might call God or the divine. And I'm not, I'm not sure tribal members I met would make that comparison, but in any case, this deep sense of the earth and all beings as being relatives um, and of uh, seem to bring with it a worldview that we have a responsibility to treat the earth and all its parts as relatives and that the welfare of the earth and our individual are inseparable. And for me, you know, that's back to my reoccurring theme of, of uh, in wildness is the preservation of the world and wildness right. being sense of interconnectedness. Oh, that's really great. I'm really sad that I didn't get to participate in that whole process. Madison, there's one other yeah. piece that really blew me away in the Bears Ears campaign uh, and moves me today still very deeply. And that is that the core message from the tribes was that we needed to protect the Bears Ears area as a monument and co-manage it with the tribes and set up co-management between the tribes and the public agencies. Not because they were there first and owned it, not because they had lived there and were forced to leave, but because it would be healing and healing, not just for the tribes, but for everyone. Um, also people, the earth, the plants, the animals, and they really meant it. Um, to me, this reflects an extraordinarily deep and sophisticated worldview about this interconnectedness of things and an incredible generosity of spirit that our white man culture often lacks. It, it really makes me weep. We have a lot to learn from indigenous cultures. So I'll tell you a story uh, about how I personally experienced this. And, and this reflects a little how my interaction with the tribes changed me. So back in my 20s, I, um, for several years, I led a college group in a field course about public lands across the Colorado Plateau. And we spent time meeting with federal land managers and visiting sites like the Black Mesa coal mine and the Glen Canyon Dam, as well as camping and hiking on public lands. One of the highlights of the trip is that we spent five days backpacking around Navajo Mountain on the Navajo Reservation. 
Um, and these were always 12 college age students and most had never been to the area. And I always insisted that we spend one full day walking in silence from dawn until the next hmm. dawn, which was kind of torture for some, <laughs> I of, these, can some of these young <laughs> folks. So one year we went to bed after our silent day and we lay down in a row like sardines uh, in this flat area there on the benches below Navajo Mountain. And I woke up in the middle of the night and everyone else was asleep. And there was this really deep silence and stillness and that sense of timelessness you experience in the desert. And I had this profound sense of the presence of the mountain rising above us. And I had this thought, I don't really matter. The mountain, this land was here before me and it will be here after me. And I am just an instant in whatever time is. And I experienced an enormous sense of relief. So mm -hmm. fast forward 40 years later, and after President Obama proclaimed Bear Sears, and I'm sitting on the edge of Cedar Mesa at sunset, watching the light fade over that amazing sweep of land one can see from there with the blue dome of Navajo Mountain on the horizon. And I was feeling that same sense of timelessness. Only this time, I was flooded with a sense, and I think an understanding, that my presence did matter not in an ego way, but in that I was part of the place, Navajo Mountain and everything around me was a relative, so to speak. I was a small S and a big S at the same time. And my presence did matter because we were inseparably interconnected. And this time, instead of being flooded with a sense of relief, I was flooded with a sense of love and gratitude. Wow. So, you know, back again to that progressive <laughs> priest who said, hell is what one experiences when one chooses to be separate from God. If God is the earth and all of life, including humans, then when we see the earth as a thing or an object, as a commodity, which is there to exploit for our own comfort and profit, instead of seeing the earth and all its beings as a community that we are one with and part of, then we have chosen not to be in the presence of or in relationship with God. And I feel that's a lot of what our, you know, white man culture does a lot of, and it's a source of a lot of the ill health that exists in our world. And that makes me weep. I have to say. Wow. That is a powerful story. Thank you so much for telling me that. That's really, I feel like I've had some similar experiences and I definitely have, uh, have felt some of that same kind of relief, but also, um, the tension between knowing that you're small s, you know, that you're insignificant in front in the face of, of this huge thing that we're a part of, but also feeling significant because you are a part of it and your actions do matter. And, and, you know, your, your presence obviously did, you know, help the, the preservation of, a, of a piece of landscape. And that's really, it's kind of powerful. Um, my final question for today would be that, you know, as I've been doing this work over the last three years and I know it, the world has decidedly been uh, pretty hard these last few years between a pandemic and some really turbulent political times. Um, you know, personally I, I battle with a little bit of cynicism. 
Um, and so I, I'm, I'm curious, you know, as you've been doing this work your whole life, how do you nurture hope? How do you sustain hope in your life? Well, that's a really great question. Um, I think should be, should be asked more <laughs> often. We should actually sit around with each other and we should talk about <laughs> this. Yeah. Because, you know, there's so many great activists and activist oriented people there. And all the time, I think, I'm sure we, uh, I'm sure we all ask ourselves this question. So I would say for myself, there's two things. And the first one might be sort of surprising. The first thing is that I, uh, I sustain hope in my life in part by being willing to walk with grief. Mm-hmm. You know, I heard an interview with Terry Tempest Williams sometime in the last couple of years where she said, if we walk with grief, it gives us courage not to look away. And I ran to my notepad and I scribbled that down because that really resonates with me. Um, I'll tell you another story. So as you know, there was an earthquake in Salt Lake Mm -hmm. City at the start (laughs) in the early days of the pandemic. And that earthquake really shook people up, including me. Um, I think in part because it underscored that sense of not being safe and of being vulnerable to the unpredictable, which was, you know, rampant uh, with the pandemic. Um, And I found myself in that, during that day, just unable to settle. Uh, And I realized that what I needed to do was to go outside and lay on the ground and listen to the ground. So I did. I went out my uh, the, the backyard of my fourplex where I was living. I laid out my tarp and I put my sleeping bag over me. I was afraid my neighbor was going to come out and think <laughs> I had my, was someone from this living on the street who had just decided <laughs> to move in. But uh, there I was, and it took me a while to settle. Um, and I just kept saying to myself. Um, I'm, I kept saying to the earth, actually, I'm here, I'm listening. And then there was this moment where waves of grief swept over me and my mind filled with images. And, you know, in some ways they're kind of uh, traditional rhetorical images, but what they were was images like the oil pumping into the gulf when that underwater pipeline broke a few years ago and it just pumped and pumped and pumped for days on end. Um, Images of the fires burning across Australia, just scorching the forest. Um, Images of lands that have been turned toxic by chemical and nuclear waste facilities. And I felt like the earth was saying, I can't continue to absorb all this. And I just lay there and wept. And I I came away from that experience with a whole different sense of the earthquake. I was no longer afraid of it. Instead, I felt like I had gotten aligned with the earth and I felt I had the strength to look at what was going on. And I felt that the earth was saying, look, we can't go on like this. We need to shake things up. So, you know, being willing to pause and feel 
um, the grief and the fear of what's going on is really important. And I think the only real way to do that, though, is not by yourself in your backyard <laughs> and you should do that, but better to find a way to do that in community. Yeah. Because I think out of grieving in community, something uh, alchemical happens. So the second thing is the, what nurtures hope for me is the people I meet. I mean, I one I love my job as an organizer at SUA. Um, I, I tell people, I tell the lawyers on staff, for instance, you know, you guys don't get to feel the love. As an organizer, you get to feel the love. And that's what is huge in sustaining me. We meet people who take time out of their lives to speak up for wild places, and they do so out of a love for the land in an unselfish way. You know, it can be small gestures, uh, the nuts and bolts of activism. They write an email, they show up at a rally, they call their representatives. But for me, I know those acts make a difference. And for me, these are acts of love. And, you know, fundamentally, love is what transforms things. So I try not to worry too much about the bigger picture. I'm not in control. What counts is to show up, do what I can, and and lean into it. And I just have immense gratitude for the work I've had the opportunity to do over the decades here in Utah uh, in service to this place I love. I just feel really deep gratitude that uh, I was able to work for Southern Utah Wellness Alliance, and before that, another conservation organization, um, and uh, to to uh, to lean into trying to protect this really special place. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, and I'm, you know, just I've been here for three years, but I'm extremely grateful for the time that I've been able to work with you and the other organizers and kind of get to get a sense of, you know, the, the history of, of activism in this state for this landscape. Um, I know I've learned a lot and I've, I've been certainly touched by your experiences and your stories. So thank you so much, Terry, for coming on and talking with me today. And a total pleasure, Madison. And I look forward to uh, more sessions of Bristlecone Firesides on my hikes and long drives. Excellent. Cool.